podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca is about analytics in cricket. And so we got on a fellow analyst who had spent a lot of time talking to his US compatriots. My name is Amol Desai. I'm a data scientist in the tech industry. I analyze the game and publish my work and insights on a blog. And I'm also currently a freelance consultant at CrickWiz. We talk about enthusiasts, stats, pop-up leagues, scouting, strategy, data science, bad pay, and African cell phones. I want to start with something. You wrote this interesting piece, and we'll talk about the piece a little bit. And in the piece, you talk about how cricket has been late to analytics, but a bit like how cell phones were late to Africa, that also gives you advantages as well as disadvantages. It does, yeah. So Africa's cell phone coverage, cell phone ownership rather, in 2002 was in the 15 to 20% range, right? And so Ghana and Kenya were like around 10%. US at that time was 64%. Come to 2014, all of them were in the 80s, 80%. So South Africa and US matched. So I think I see it as a lesson on being able to leapfrog and not being burdened by accumulated headwinds, inertia, you know, just, just being pulled down by this large infrastructure investment that, that the US had made in, in like, you know, landlines and so on at that point. So I think there's something to borrow from that learning into what we are looking at with cricket. So it's all great. Look at our peers um, in other sports. Look at precedents. A lot of the times we get asked, right? We, we get asked, like, if we propose something in cricket, use of technology in cricket, use of data in cricket, we often get asked, has this been done in other sports? And yes, it's always good to learn from that precedence, but I think there is enough opportunity for us. Our, our game is unique, our needs may be unique, and if we see an opportunity, we should be able to take the lead and kind of you know drive things forward as well. And one thing you talk about in the piece is that we're still at the stage where the majority of the people doing this are enthusiasts, not to quote Mr. Srinivasan's son-in-law too much there, but essentially, even if you look at someone like me, uh, a lot of people who work at CrickViz, a lot of people yourself. who've become yeah. analysts for different teams. Yeah, yourself. A lot of us either weren't full-time when we started, you know, had never done it before and, and if this was the first job, or uh, part-time, you know, like Dan Weston and Joe Harris and all these different people. There's a lot of enthusiasm for cricket analytics, but there's not a lot of professionalism at the moment, is there? Yeah, so there's a need to decipher quality versus quantity. There's a lot of people who put a lot of work out there. There's people on Twitter tweeting quote-unquote, insights all the time, right? Especially when games are going on and so on. But you need to understand that any person or set of people don't represent the field. So there's a couple of things for people making decisions based on what they see. So one is not to get too eager, but also not to be dismissive of early failures, right? So for the enthusiast community, I think there's a lot to be done to kind of empower them, right? Empower them with data, empower them with motivation, with challenges, empowered with some re- rewards, maybe exposure, right? Uh, there's a lot of like analysts right now, or what I call guerrilla analysts on, on Twitter and other forums. They put out a lot of good work. And if you notice, like uh, I think Flighted Leggy and then a couple of others had, had posted some good a- analysis and Sky Sports took it up at, or at least mentioned them. I think Sharda Ugra at ESPN Kriko also mentioned it in one of the podcasts that she was doing. It is encouraging for people like us. That is one form of motivation. And, and these are like 
this is being done at, in an ad hoc manner right now, but you could channelize all of this energy and do it in a more systematic way, right? And th- there's a lot to be leveraged and harnessed here. On the data side of things, there's something to be said about the availability of data, and we can talk a, a lot more about that. A lot of the people like us who started, we invested a lot of time in just getting a data set that we could mm. use for, for the work that we do. And folks keep on reinventing the wheel even today. I did a piece on Akshar Patel last year, and I used some Hawkeye data from the BCCI website. Now, after I did that, I got tons of requests. Just, is there a sniper red dot on your forehead now that you've said you're stealing from the BCCI? <laughs> Maybe there is. <laughs> uh, I'm not stealing from the BCCI. It's from their public website, so it's, it's all good, right? So, but once I did that, there's like a ton of people who who kind of reached out to me, asked where I got the data, how they can get it. Some people are already getting the data and then they reached out and said, how do I decipher this column and so on? So these people are all redoing the work that I had already done. I probably redid the work at that point as well. This can be coordinated. We don't need to be doing this. There is something to be said about being able to incrementally build on other people's work. And you talked about three different groups within the cricket community as a whole. So the first one is the one that's already using stats, which is the sort of people that you're talking about who are on Stats Guru or have grown up reading those sorts of articles. And especially a lot of the American people who, uh, you know, have followed American sports are, are more used to that. Then you've got the sort of old school group who think that stats are unreliable, who don't necessarily believe that stats are important in cricket. Apparently, they haven't looked at the fact that we uh, mark the game in runs yet. And then you have the third group, which is the practitioners, which is kind of what you're talking about with these enthusiasts coming through, who are, in some cases, maybe overly devoted to it. One of the big things that I suppose I learned very early on was that there's no magic number, which is something that Nathan Lehman talks about a lot. And the other thing is that it's like there is no way to be able to tell, and you and I know this because we've done a lot of this in our work, we don't really know what the pitch is going to do. We know right. perhaps what it has done beforehand, and that's about the best case. So you have those sort of three groups, and that's sort of a lot of the cricket community is sort of split between those three at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, and, and the third, that actually reminds me of boundary percentage, which goes around a lot these days. It has like this one number that we should use to judge players. Yes, it's a good indicator, but you know, to your point, there's a lot of other things to look at. So yeah, going back to the three types of people, the first one, I think it's not just people who wrote Stats Guru and people who are entrenched in the field. So these are people who think they are using data. They think they are using data to the full. And in just talking to people interacting with people in the cricket world. It seems like a lot of these people are actually making decisions and a lot of people are running teams and and, and so on. And you can't at this time in cricket believe that you are already leveraging data to its full. Like baseball is finally, they're, they're kind of saying that we are finally getting saturated with just using the data that we have with event data that is. But baseball has been doing this for what? Moneyball came out, what, 20 years ago? Yeah, well, Sabermetrics is 20 years beforehand. So yeah, Yeah, so it's almost a 40-year industry at this point. Right. And they still say there's more to do with minor leagues, with colleges, with high schools, high school baseball, and and so Mm. on. They are actually just getting started with Hawkeye data and biomechanics and things like that. So there is still more to do for them. And so at this point, we should be actually looking out for where we should invest in rather than saying, we are done. We are already doing this. We don't need your help. Like th- that's the wrong attitude. The second type of people are, like you said, 
they don't believe that stats are reliable. Stats and data are reliable. They don't want to go to stats. They want to work with instincts and so on, right? And to an extent, they're right, right? You cannot be truly data-driven because the data isn't good enough to be truly data-driven like you can be in other industries. There is a lot more uncertainty in sports, and that's something that you kind of need to understand and bring to the fore. But like I think mentioned in the piece, uncertainty isn't introduced by the data. It is just exposed by the data and it helps you understand that uncertainty. Right. So like if you're interested in, in some of this, like you can actually use data to kind of build up your instincts and then use your instincts. It's all, it's all right. It's good to use instincts. Daniel Kahneman has a great book on this, right? Thinking fast and slow. He talks a lot about two different types of thinking and, and decision-making and so on. So, And then there's like the third type of people, practitioners who don't know what they don't know. And along with this, I would also club people who talk in, in terms of those stats guys or girls. They do their magic. They throw things across the wall. And that's the end of it, right? A lot of people in TV commentary these days uh, talk in these terms. They, they, they will talk about matchups and they will talk about things that those stats guys, those people in technology will do or do today. And that's kind of where it is. Right? So I, I think I would club those two types of people um, maybe together. Like one of my favorite examples here, or pet peeves rather, is matchups, right? We got matchups from baseball and they're all good. I mean, if they're done well, they're useful, they're good. But then you get a game like Bangladesh uh, the other day, right? Then you get people talking about matchups between two players, regardless of whether they have faced each other for 10 balls, 100 balls, 500 balls, nothing matters at that point. This guy does this against this other guy. That's our conclusion. That's what we will do to make decisions. And that's where we kind of go down that slippery slope. Um, and it hurts us. It hurts credibility. Mm -hmm. It hurts the use of data in cricket. So uh, that's, I guess, what I have to say about it. And and I guess one more thing, like I just heard somebody mention it the other day. And so if someone says AI at this point with the amount of data and the type of data we have, like just walk away. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the matchups is, I found that really interesting. I think the first time I looked through a data set was an IPL season. And the most balls I found was Kuldeep Yadav bowled 23 balls to David Warner. And then I looked and I couldn't find another season where anyone had even faced that many balls for one ball. And then I went and looked at baseball. If you're in the same division as that pitcher in baseball, you're going to face way more pitches yes. from, from someone. Maybe less so over the last couple of years of baseball because no one pitches more than two innings now. But in the old days when you had people doing that. And so it's something that we brought across that didn't work. The other thing is, and obviously I've worked more with teams than you have, but you have to understand the people that you are dealing with. I've made this joke many times, but it's not actually a joke. It's factually correct. Most cricket coaches have Hotmail accounts. Now, <laughs> I know that you, you know, you're an advanced computer person, and I'm not quite at that level, but I know that Hotmail is not exactly the, uh, you know, if you've got a Hotmail account, you basically started using the internet 20 years ago, <laughs> and probably everyone who's uh, as a hacked in the world, I think I could hack a Hotmail account at this point. And the same with the older players coming through. And I've had this conversation with many older players before. I, I remember one player saying to me, I don't get it because you guys tell me all this data, but then the next game I'm in, everyone bowls at my hip, right? And won't that just change the data? And I had to show him and I was like, well, here's 900 balls that you've faced. Let's have a look at the 12 balls that you faced that were at your hip in that one particular game. How's that going to change the overall information that we have on you? And that's not having a go at this player. This is a smart player trying to understand it. But... He's not from this environment. He doesn't understand it. So there's certainly, I know for me, there's certainly a lot of cricketers and coaches who are not literate. At it. As you said, a lot of the commentators are not literate. Some of the things they say, and I think, oh, no, that's going to make us sound awful. 
that's not what we should be saying at all. So there needs to be, uh, you know, an overall improvement in the way that we talk about analytics and the way that we talk about information in cricket. But five years ago, most of the stuff that is on TV now wasn't even mentioned. So we've already had a big jump forward just in the last couple of years. Yeah. And, and Jared, you don't have to be literate. You just have to be open-minded, right? There's a lot that needs to be done in terms of like relationship building, looking at data analysts as partnership, not as a service. Yes, there might be too many cooks. I mean, once you start looking at it as a partnership, are they part of the decision-making team, the think tank, as they call it, right? Yes, there might be too many cooks in the kitchen, but we need to figure out a way to work with that and, and see how, I mean, there, there might, you know, there, there's a lot of things that we can do that from an organizational perspective, but it is a partnership, right? And then it, it helps both ways. It, it helps analysts also be, they are illiterate in a lot of ways as well, as far as the game is concerned. There's, there's a lot that people like us need to learn about the game, how it's played, about, you know, challenges within both technical challenges within the game, but also social challenges and, and peer pressure and, and, you know, pressure of expectations and on all of these kinds of things. But things like not taking a single off a certain bowler, like it's not just a technical decision necessarily. There could be a lot of other things that are associated with it. And it's it's good for us to kind of understand and build that empathy as well. Also, and I heard this from a lot of people within American sports as I was writing this up, right? It avoids building this echo chamber within the analytics team. Because mm. otherwise what happens is there is no good way to wet the work that the team does. And the coaches and the team in general doesn't have that buy-in from the work that is done. And so no matter what kind of quality analytics work is produced, if it's not part of your operational workflows, if it's not within your decision-making process, it is useless. Hmm. So I think there is this relationship to be built. And as part of that, I mean, one thing that one of the people that I was talking to, um, and he's worked with a few teams, he's also taught courses um, in universities and so on. He actually mentioned, and then I'm just quoting, like he said, every interaction is an opportunity to learn and to educate and not an argument to be won. And I would actually add to this, like there is also interaction that needs to be done in the off season. Like these interactions don't just need to be done in the month or two that the IPL is played for, or, you know, a World Cup is played for, whatever the tournament is, right? There's this off. But there is a lot of prep time that leagues get these days, at least, um, because there's only a few leagues around the world. And there's a lot of opportunity for these relationships to be built during that downtime as well. Yeah, I think that's where the American system is so different to cricket. And it's worth pointing out some of the reasons why analytics has been a little bit slower in cricket. Like, mm -hmm. international teams are basically government-run. I know they're not quite government-run, but they're on their own. There aren't four other Indian cricket boards. It's like, one, they only need to be the best Indian cricket board. They don't need to be in the free market. You then have private ownership, which is quite new. And also, the kind of private ownership we have, you know, I call these T20 leagues pop-up leagues because they're not full-time. So almost every job I've ever had, I've never been paid for like more than three or four days before the tournament starts, mm. which means that basically I am doing the kind of analysis work during the tournament more often than not that I should have done a month earlier and having to, you know, scratch around and everything. And so there are differences within cricket that have held us back a little bit, which might eventually, as you say, there might be benefits as well. Like if you do have maybe four or five great analysts in the world who travel around and they're in the Caribbean and then they're in South Africa, then they're in Australia, then they're in India. They might learn things that an NBA analyst will never learn just because the NBA analyst is just working in, in one field. 
So there are advantages to it, but there are certainly disadvantages to the way that cricket is run when it comes to furthering analytics, I think. It is, yeah. And and boards kind of hold this back as well, right? I mean, you can actually see this in the game itself, the quality of cricket that is being played in the World Cup right now, which is government-run boards playing against each other versus the cricket that's played in, in some of the leagues around the world. It's a little bit different. It's almost different also in, in the players' minds. I mean, yes, you are playing for the country and that gives you a different platform and, and you know a different sense of pride and, and so on. But then the, the quality of cricket itself and the thought process is, is in some cases uh, quite different. The other place where I think this kind of comes into play is like the example that you gave, Jared, is you started analyzing or producing analysis for teams late in the game. So maybe a couple of days before the tournament started. And I'm sure a lot of the work that you were doing initially was even just getting the data into the right place in the right form and so on. Telecoding. Yeah. And and this takes you back to like, who owns this data, right? Today, we have to gather the data mm. from different places. Like, is there a central ownership for the data? There is none in cricket. For somebody new who wants to get into the analytics game in cricket, they have to start from scratch. And it's not just them. You're basically saying that it's, it's people like you who is actually working with teams as well that have to do some of this. And so I think it starts there. And then you can kind of go deeper and deeper and kind of um, come up with these differences. But for the MLB and the NBA, the MLB owns data, the NBA owns data, they make it available freely, like it's open source, uh, you can you know, you can get it now and start chugging away. So I, th- I think the difference starts there. Just on that, I was told by an agent in cricket that he could get me a lot of work if I just had access to video. And I was like, why would I pay for video myself when that is what cricket teams should be doing? That doesn't make any sense. That's such a backward way of looking at things. Just on the league thing, I think it's really interesting. As you said, there's a few leagues around the world that have open source data. Our biggest problem is that we don't even have one league. Yeah. I've talked to the Big Bash about this. 2017, 2018, Anthony Everard, I think, was running the Big Bash at that time. And he was like, yeah, that's what we want to do. We want to be the open source league. And they haven't done it. I talked to the 100. At one stage, the 100 were whispering to me that they wanted me to run like a, you know, an open stats page for them. And, you know, there was going to be more data and everything. Well, that didn't happen because they ran out of money. The IPL doesn't particularly do anything. The ICC doesn't release anything. And so you're in a situation where because we don't have one unifying league who's sort of in charge of everything, which is cricket's problem for everything, not just analytics. But because of that, again, it's held back. And so the amount of people who just contact me going, where do you find this information? And I'm just like, I think I should tattoo Crick Sheet on my arm at this point to let people know that's to find it. But that might have been how you originally contacted me was just like, how do you get hold of this information? And it's so frustrating because I know how many smart people there are out there who would be able to do great things. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's basically where it starts, honestly. Like we have to make sure that the data is available in a more standardized format in general, right? And and because we don't have that, we also have companies that have the data and they hold the data. And in some ways, a lot of their business is that they have the data. It's not what they do with the data. It's that they have the data. And, and so there is some incremental stuff that they might be doing on top of it, but their business model may not kind of cater to using the data well. Mm. The other thing that you talked about, and, and you should talk about, mention it there when you, when you talk about the businesses, but we have a lot of in-house analytics teams in the IPL, for instance, and with international teams. But we also have a lot of external companies now, Sports Mechanics and CrickViz and Kadamba, Opta, obviously, although I, I don't know if Opta quite counts that, but they have information that you have to pay for as well. 
When you looked at the American sports, I know that that does happen at times in American sports. Is this something that will work for cricket, having external companies and in-house companies going at the same time? Yeah, I think it's different levels of maturity. So what I heard in American sports is this, right? So there's a lot of, when new teams come up, they are either not able to afford having an in-house team or that their in-house team is not yet up to speed. And in, in those kinds of cases, having a third party come in helps them up-level themselves and mm -hmm. kind of compete with the other more mature teams in the league. And then there's like a mature state of this where third parties are still useful. A lot of their tooling is used as cross-check tool in these cases where essentially teams are coming up with hypotheses and using these tools. Why are they doing that? That's because third parties can fund a lot more in time and people. And so they can do a lot more deeper research. Uh, they can build you know, better tooling they can spend on building this better tooling. They can come up with standardized common building blocks that teams can then leverage and then pull into their workflows, right? In that mature state, it's set up more as a complementary relationship where in-house teams know more about the problem. And this is also a matter of preference. They know more about the problem, but they also think they know more about the problem that is specific to them. They want to kind of build up their own secret sauce because now everybody has access to the third party. And so how do you differentiate? You differentiate by building your in-house team and incrementally building on top of it to solve the problems that you care about. And they work on more of the firefighting kind of uh, stuff like strategy and coaching aids and, and, and so on. Whereas the third party does a lot of the research once you hit that level of maturity. And I know that you've talked to teams the same as I have. You probably know more now than you maybe even did before you started contacting teams and, and, and chatting to teams. You talked about, I didn't realize this, some NFL and NHL teams only have one and two person analytic teams. The biggest analytic team, the sort of new build was going to be the 100, where they were going to have seven analysts per team. I think they ended up with two analysts per team and maybe one in the women's 100, although I'm not 100% sure on how many they had in the women's, but it certainly wasn't seven. And, you know, I think that you and I have talked about this before, but how do you think is the best way of building an analytics team for cricket? So one thing, because there are so many vendors in cricket, because the data is not freely available and it is spread out, the sense that I have in the way analytics is run in cricket today is that you have these multiple vendors, everybody is farmed a question out, right? So you, you send a question to team A, you send a question to team B, send a question to team C, it comes back, you somehow try to make sense of it together. There is a strong need for coordination across vendors, across third parties, across analysts and coaching staff, right? Somebody needs to kind of sit there and figure out what to do with all of this information in a coordinated fashion rather than answering these things in isolation. Today, if you look at teams focusing on the draft or, or on the auction in, in the case of the IPL versus coaching and strategy, now those two questions are driven as separate questions. I don't think they should be driven as separate questions. Eventually, they merge together. One feeds the other and so on. So I think there's a strong need for coordination. The other thing that we kind of see here is the size of the team, right? And then, like, as you pointed out, the NFL and the NHL are kind of early in the, in the data game, I would say, as compared to NBA or MLB. And they do start off with one or two people on the team. Baseball has a lot more, right? Baseball has mm. more than a dozen. Most teams have more than a dozen people. I think some teams have close to 20 people on an analytics team. So at that point, it is like running a small tech company, really. And, and so they are doing a lot of the data engineering, the data crunching, building tooling, and, and, and so on as well. And so, again, like when your team grows like that, there's a lot of coordination to do. There's a lot of prioritization to do. 
baseball has actually this position called a coordinator. So I, I talked to folks whose title it was that they, they were directors of research or coordinators, right? And, and, and so these are actually positions that have been created and it's somebody's job to go, go in and do this. The other thing that baseball's doing, and it's probably quite new and it may not have come up in your research, is they're trying to get ex-players involved in working with the analytics teams. So if there's an ex-player who has a maths background or an ex-player who studied science or an ex-player who's just really curious about that sort of thing, because, and then this is, I think, where I had an advantage over a lot of other analysts is even though I'm not an ex-player, I spent so much time around cricket and playing it and talking to players that I kind of understand the language you know, 75 to 80% of it compared to a lot of analysts, there's a lot of stuff that is actually quite helpful to know when you're putting these things together. And that was the other big thing. And, and you talk about that a little bit in the piece, the sort of the mix of knowing about cricket and the mix of knowing about data science. So any team you kind of put together needs a combination of both. There's some great analysts in cricket who couldn't tell you exactly what an off-cutter is and would not be able to bowl you one or help a captain with one. And there are other analysts who are absolutely brilliant at that, but like literally anything above an Excel spreadsheet is going to terrify them. Yeah. So there's three different types of work streams here, right? We're talking about scouting. We're talking about strategy. We're talking about research. Research can happen in the off-season. Strategy is more related to firefighting. Scouting also happens, you know, it's slow burning and it happens more towards the drafts and so on. And you need different types of skills in, in general to kind of address these different work streams. I find that it's easy to find people who can build models and work with the data. So do the research, do the model building, build models for analyzing scout reports and then taking them into account and how you take data, build an understanding of layer valuation, and then overlay scouting on top of it. Mm. Now, there you need to understand the game at a deeper level, and then you get aid, right? So this all gets pulled into this coordination effort again, where you as an analyst Yes, you need to know how to build models and work with data, but you need to understand cricket or you need to be able to work with people who understand cricket. That's scouts, that's coaches, that's ex-players, whoever that might be. And when it comes to these people, now we go back to the previous point that we talked about, data literacy, right? So how do you coordinate all of this and you communicate with all of these people? And it's not the same language that you can use across the board. So as you see here, like it's easy to find somebody who can build models and work with data Harder to find somebody who does that and knows cricket. Harder yet to find somebody who does all of that and can coordinate and communicate. And I guess on top of that, you can layer another skill of like, how do you build teams as you become more mature? How do you grow from this two-person analyst team to like a 20-person analyst team or, or something like that? So it becomes rarer and rarer and harder and harder to find people who can kind of do that, go down that increasing level of complexity path. And then what I heard from a lot of people, even within these sports in cricket, we think American sports are very mature when they talk about data and building teams and having teams and so on. But they also talk about having lots of volume in terms of applications, lots of people who are mildly interested, but may not possess all of these skills. Lots of people who like they are able to build models. Yes, they do really well with that. They are great at math. But how do you kind of apply that? Is is that next level? And and so there is a sense of like, yes, there's a lot of volume and a lot of applications, but they may not possess all the skills. And in that case, how do we enable these people? How do we encourage these people? How do we set up training programs? How do we kind of give them a growth path? And then this happens in all industries. But I think in the sports industry, we are 
a little bit impatient sometimes on providing these opportunities and, and setting up these growth paths and, and careers for people. So you have these. And then on the other hand, you also have, and I see this in cricket as well, there's a lot of skilled hobbyists that are really hard to access. There's so many people who've written blogs or tweeted something or, or regularly tweet something and seems interesting that I've reached out. I know you've reached out to some of them as well. I am not well recognized. You are. And both of us have had the same results. They haven't responded, right? And, and so there is that aspect as well. But that's something that we have to prioritize. Do we want these people on board? And if so, how do we incentivize them to kind of respond and come on board and then help out the game or at least get involved in the game? Maybe help out the game is a little bit pretentious. Or people who are already there but may not be as skilled, how do we help them up-level themselves and, and build a path for them? Yeah, and, and part of the problem with everything that you just said, which is a perfectly reasonable way of dealing with it, is that people don't want to invest in analytics teams within sport. And so you'll be shocked to know that my fee is probably slightly higher than a lot of analysts out there. And teams won't even come near you because they're just like, well, we can find someone else to sit in the corner with a laptop. So I'm not saying you can't, but I think I have other skills and I have other things that are worthwhile. But there's not a lot of money in this at the moment. Most of the people who are doing it have either picked up very good jobs with national teams and so that they can do a little bit of freelancing and franchise work, or they're people like me who have other jobs either in cricket or outside of cricket and can pop in and out whenever they want to. Like if you go down this path, you're going to have to make a lot less money. I don't know if you've told your wife this yet, but you're going to have to make a lot less money. That's a realistic thing for where we are going with analytics. Even as we get more and more people involved, if it's not taken seriously so that we start to pay people properly, and that's going to cause us problems down the road anyway. Yeah. So I actually, this was a prominent question for people that I talked to. Um, I, I talked to a bunch of folks and some of them had gone from technology to sports. And so I had specific questions for them. And then I think I had a couple of people who went from sports back to technology. And then so pay was a big thing that came up. And, and a lot of people who just recently finished their PhDs and stuff, and, and now they're working in sports, but they know what they're missing out on, or they know that they're, they're missing out on in terms of pay, but they know about the trade-off that they're making, mm. right? And consistently, I think they reported at least 30 to 50, but one person said, I, I took a 50% pay cut and I'm still the highest paid person in the league. So that's where we are at, right? And then so with that, it's really hard to incentivize good talent to come on board. Mm. Like you have to be really passionate about what you're doing. Even if I just take my example, right? I've, I've been doing this for quite a while now and it is not easy. Like I've been putting in nights and, and weekends and commutes and, and that kind of stuff. Like I, So it's not easy to keep up for a lot of people. And, and so what happens is there's new people who try to get on board. They're just out of college. They have a lot of time. But as soon as life catches up with them, they realize that they're not passionate enough. Mm. Yeah, I, and I think that's a big part of it. We, until it's a proper career, the enthusiasts that we talked about will continue to push hard because they're the ones who are desperate to be involved and love it. But it really needs to be a combination of enthusiasts and skilled professionals, I think, for it to go forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's new people who are willing to work for a lot less. And so, especially for short periods of time, right? So they come in and then then what? Like they actually sometimes end up setting the bar low as well because they are willing to work for less and people get their work done. And then there's churn. So they come in, there's churn. You have to retrain this other person. There's actually cost to this that people who are making these investments maybe don't necessarily understand, right? Because yes, you will pay somebody more, but then if you retain that person, if you grow that person, 
that person's going to pay you dividends. Whereas if you're going to pay somebody else, there's going to be more churn. They're going to leave. You're going to have to train somebody else again. You're going to have to set up this whole system from scratch. You give up on incremental progress by doing that. So I think Dan Weston also, he, he wrote a piece recently on, on this pay gap. You wrote something similar on the coaching side of things, if I'm not wrong, uh, you know, a while ago, um, on assistant coaches not being paid enough. And I think all of that, like, it's it's very similar in essence to what we're talking about here. Yeah. No, I mean, honestly, I think everyone should just hire sports journalists because they're used to making so little money that they won't even notice the lack of money in these other things. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jared. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. If you're enjoying Red Inca but want to know more about Fred Spoffer's moustache or the time Vizzy got stumped looking like a buffoon or any other great stories from Cricket's past, well, I have a History of Cricket podcast called Double Century. This time we look at something that will please cricket fans around the world, except maybe from one country, because we're looking at the first time teams defeated England. It's a different kind of podcast series in that it's mostly narrated, but there will also be some key episodes that I'm interviewing the players involved. You can hear this by finding Double Century in your favourite podcast app.